0: Hello and welcome to the Adult Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on Online Meetings and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm happy to introduce our speaker tonight, Melissa W. from Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you. It's always good to unmute myself before I start talking. So um, thank you for your service, Julie, and everyone else. And I appreciate the opportunity to be here to speak. Um, I sometimes speak by reading off my other screen, but then I feel like I can't see the peeps. And so then I'm like, okay, so I should probably read from notes, but then it looks like I'm looking down. There's no good good balance there, right? Um, but I really I love being able to see people's faces and know that you're out there. And I do see some familiar faces from other meetings. I even actually see a fancy out there, which is kind of cool. Um, so um, thanks for having me. So as Julie said, my name is Melissa and I am actually an adult grandchild of alcoholics. Um, I'm an adult child of para-alcoholics, um, an adult child of an extremely dysfunctional home. Um, and as an adult, I am a codependent. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm a perfectionist, I'm an eternal victim, um, masterful denier of all blame, That's, and uh, I'm also the spouse of a recovering workaholic adult child as well. Um, but I was raised by parents who did not drink. Um, my grandparents on both sides were raging alcoholics, so my parents acted like alcoholics. Um, I'm the fifth of six girls. My mom had a miscarriage four years before I was born. And unlike her other pregnancies, uh, her pregnancy for me was not planned. So while she was pregnant for me, she spent the entire pregnancy terrified of having another miscarriage, which is not really the best way to enter the world, being um, carried inside the body of someone who's in this constant state of stress. And although I wasn't told about the circumstances of my conception and incubation until I was 18 years old. I think in some ways, I I always knew. And I recently heard the term, the unthought known. And I thought, that's exactly it. That's the concept of having experiences in our life that we don't remember, but they are our experiences. And not many of us would remember um, in our gestational period inside of our mother. But Our bodies remember it. And if you've ever read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, that's exactly the point in there is that any experience that our body has had, we remember whether we can pull it up into our conscious memory or not. So that's how I came into the world. Um, My dad uh, was a workaholic. He was very codependent. Um, As a kid, he was physically abused by um, one of his siblings. His dad died when he was young. Um, So he had very strong female influences in his life, his grandmother and his mother. Ultimately, as an adult, he would become an enabler, particularly of my mom. Um, He smoked. He was a compulsive overeater. And then much later in life, after losing my mom to cancer in 2010, um, he would also struggle with drinking something that he had never, um, you know, my parents didn't drink at all for most of their lives. Um, but my dad was the calm force in my childhood and my biggest cheerleader. He was sort of the reason why I felt safe most days. My mom, on the other hand, was a compulsive overeater, a bulimic, um, a rager. That, I probably should say she's a rager first. She was a rager. She was a narcissist. Um, she, a perfectionist, codependent. And her family of origin was beyond fucked up. I mean, I don't, there's no other way to put it. Um, she, and that included her, she was a survivor of of incest. She was molested as a child. So as an adult, my mom was the storm that sort of destroyed and paralyzed me as a kid. Um, but no one drank except maybe on holidays or at a company party. And so for me, the crazy that went on in my home was really pervasive because unlike you know, even, I even had friends who could be like, well, yeah, it's crazy at home, but her dad is drunk all the time. There was no thing that I could pin that crazy on in my home. And so it didn't really feel like maybe it's not really crazy. Maybe it's me. And, and so I, you know, much like that sort of pervasive dysfunction that you couldn't really pin down as a kid, I myself felt like I was unseen, unheard, unworthy. Um, and I grew up feeling like, Like I was a disappointment when I, when I was never sure why I was never enough. And, um, as I said, I had four older sisters and three of those sisters thought I was the best thing that had ever happened to their family, to our family. They, I was like a, their own living baby doll. They like played with me and dressed me up and carried me around and they completely loved me. Um, and then one of my sisters, um, the one who I, um, displaced as the baby of the family spent her entire Childhood, even into adulthood, just tormenting me for having taken her place as the baby of the family. Um, But truly, no adult ever delighted in me as a kid. Um, In fact, my mom, probably worse than not having an adult delight in me, worse than that is that my mom would withhold emotional connection and love with us as a way of controlling us as kids. And we knew that. And we were constantly vying for it. Yet, no matter what I did, it was never enough to earn that emotional connection with her, to earn that love. And, and, you know, kids need that. That's that's what makes kids thrive, right? And for normal emotional development, I was denied that connected parent with my mom. Um, And so I internalized that abandonment and decided the best way to survive it Would be, I had two sort of um, survival mechanisms, particularly as a little kid. One, I would be silly. Um, My older sisters loved me as a baby and a toddler, and I made them laugh. And so I realized if I could do that for my parents as well, I would probably survive a little bit easier and not get in trouble as much, or at least not be the focus of my mom's rage. And my mom raged every day. Um, But the other side of that was, I Learned not to trust anyone and especially my parents because they, and even if it was perhaps unintentional, they allowed me to be tormented by my sister, my next oldest sister, as well as um, my maternal grandfather. And so they could not be trusted. Um, as I mentioned, my mom grew up in a very major dysfunction, and my maternal grandfather was I don't know if he's a textbook alcoholic or if he's like, he's like the I don't know, the, just everything bad about an alcoholic, he was. Um, he was a wife beater. He was a child abuser. He was a rapist. He was a murderer. He was pretty much an all-around asshole. Um, as a child, he was abandoned by his own mother at a state-run orphanage. And then later, she tried to kidnap him from his adoptive parents. So he certainly had a hard life coming up in the 20s and 30s. But as an adult, he would beat his own, beat his wife. Um, He murdered his seven-year-old son and subsequently covered it up and was never held accountable for it. Um, He molested children, including my mom, her siblings, her cousins, even got the neighbor's teenager pregnant. And ultimately, he would molest all of his grandchildren, including um, me, between the ages of four and six years old. I wouldn't remember that sexual assault until I was in my 20s. But um, it definitely, as I've gotten into recovery and into therapy, I realized it, it really was these, those defining things that happened between four and six that shaped me as a kid. Um, the good Lord did bless us when I was in second grade, um, when my grandfather died. And I do remember his funeral and people were joyful at his funeral, which was really confusing as a kid, because I remember sitting there with my little sister, who's two years younger than me and thinking, why isn't anybody crying? If our dad died, we would be devastated. And yet all these people were completely happy that this man was dead. And it seemed really confusing. Um, But no one talked about it. No one said what was going on. And, you know, of course they didn't because we were dysfunctional. And it was one of the many places I learned as a kid not to talk. So I didn't trust, don't trust, don't talk. Um, In the summer after my fourth grade year, um, on just one regular August day, my mom walked through our living room and told my little sister and I that she was headed to a meeting and she'd see us later. Um, And when my dad got home that night and questioned us about it, we were like, we don't know. She went to a meeting. (laughs) We don't know where she is. He didn't know where she was. And as it turned out, she was gone for a week. She had decided to go to Phoenix to visit her mom, but didn't tell anybody she was leaving, including my dad, and and just left. And the, that is probably one of the deepest pains of my childhood. Um, it stems from her decision to abandon us because it was so confusing and and we looked at our dad who was the adult that was left and he was paralyzed by what was going on. And I, I've talked to him about it as an adult and I realized now that he was, um, he doesn't actually even remember her leaving that summer. He can't remember the incident. And when I asked him about it, he just really was like, I don't remember it. And I realized that even though I kind of pressed and tried to get more information about it, um, and he couldn't remember. I realized that the, that that event was well. It was traumatic for me as, as a kid. It was so traumatic for him that he had completely disassociated from it, and it was not part of his life story. And um, that's that concept of, that um, in the body keeps the Store that um, Dr. Bessel um, DeKal- talks about that says trauma is such that the more significant the trauma the less likely it is to become a part of our life story and it's how we dissociate and protect ourselves and my dad has an adult experience this exact same experience I had and it and it completely paralyzed him and he doesn't remember it um, ultimately when I did talk to him about it and I was pressing him and I said really I, you know I don't even want you to, re- to know what you remember about it. I just wanted to, I just want to know why she left. Like I, I've always felt like it was my fault. Like my sister and I had done something wrong. And my dad just looked at me and he said, well, well, you were in fourth grade. Like it was probably my fault, Melissa, but I don't know whose fault it was, but it definitely wasn't your fault. And those actually were the words I needed to hear. It took us a long time to get there and talking about it. But it was just so completely like, how could the mom leave and just leave us? And we didn't know. We didn't have any directions. Like, what are we supposed to make for dinner? And who's going to take care of the kids tomorrow? And, you know, what do we do next week? And what do we tell people when you're not around? It was all of these things. And it felt very shameful. Like, we couldn't tell people that she left because she left without telling us. So that felt like it was, she would left us with this huge amount of shame that maybe there was something wrong with her leaving. Um, but it was that summer, I think, that when I realized that. You know, my little sister and I were literally and figuratively all alone in the world, um, even though there were all these adults and bigger people swirling around us that there wasn't anybody that really was looking out for us. And um, so as, uh, very soon after that, in, in fifth grade, um, I was um, so today I am almost six feet tall. But in fifth grade, I was five foot four inches tall, I had size nine feet, which are the same size of feet I have now. And I weighed just under 100 pounds. And they weighed us in PE, which is I don't even, that's such a ridiculous thing to do for kids. And of course, every girl in the class weighed so much less than me. And I, so I expressed to my mom that, oh, my gosh, I'm so much bigger than everybody else in terms of weight when they weighed us. And her response to that was to offer that I could go on a diet and lose weight. Um, you know, I have a fifth grade daughter now and <laughs> there's no scenario in which I, as her mother would ever suggest that she go on a diet, um, no matter what I w- I wouldn't use those words. And I wouldn't suggest that she restrict her food intake as a way of, um, feeling better about herself. And, um, of course, come full circle from that. My daughter, who is um, adopted, actually um, has anorexia, but not from anything that happened when she was in my house, but came to, before she came to us in foster care. But back then, um, my my mom just failed to acknowledge that there stood before her this child that was almost as tall as a full grown woman, um, and that, like a puppy, had these huge feet. Um, and said, maybe I could go on a diet. There was no discussion about preteen bodies, hormones, or normal growth, anything like that. And so that one moment in time, again, set me up for this, this all new trajectory in my life, that not only was there something wrong with me, which is a feeling that I now know primarily resulted from being molested, there was something wrong with my body. And that message that I learned from that was very loud and clear not to feel so don't trust don't talk and don't feel and I learned a ton of ways not to feel um, over the next you know 10 12 years and well really a lifetime until I came to recovery but primarily food and bad relationships were the ways I learned not to feel as an adult, I would, I would find more ways like, you know, just drama, addicted to excitement, clutter, procrastination, over-involvement, um, anything that would avoid feeling my feelings um, or admitting my truth or healing my childhood. Um, but back then it was that I didn't have all of those things available to me. And so um, food and bad relationships were, were th- what I chose. Um, there, those, two, those two biggies were um, the food part of it was so easy. No one knew I ate. Um, it was the perfect drug for me as a kid. I, I was a teenager, my metabolism was off the charts. Um, my body just kept growing and developing. By eighth grade, I was five foot eight, and I weighed like 110 pounds, I had a C cup bust, a um, head of dark red hair, which I occasionally peroxided orange. and Um, I had a streak of rebellion from watching my older sisters and a pretty sassy mouth. And so I started receiving attention from older boys because of my body. And I was like, ah, yes, please. I am worth nothing without you in my life. So bad relationships and food were my alcohol. And I spent my um, entire teenage years and most of my college years um, drunk in those two things. So by high school and college I was completely numb. I was completely disassociated from my feelings. Um I was completely unaware of who I was or who I could be. I didn't actually think I had any choice in who I could be. It was whatever my parents told me or my boyfriend's told me or whatever. I mean I um I went to law school and I became a lawyer because my boyfriend went to law school. <laughs> Not because I had like any deep desire to be a lawyer. So it I really just had no idea how to make a decision for myself or to even know what I wanted. Um, in adulthood, my metabolism would slow down and my eating would catch up with me. My weight would go up and down. Um, my first true love, the one who um, I went to law school with, um, he broke up with me, and I can look back now and say, as he should have, because I was a hot mess. Um, but after that heartache, I said yes to the first man who came along, and so at 23. I married a man who raged at his mother in the back of the church in the hearing of all of our wedding guests on the day of our wedding. And I didn't think I had a choice at that point. Um, In my mind, I was, I mean, I was paralyzed by what was going on, by the fact that he was making this huge scene in the back of the church and screaming at his mother. But I felt like I knew that my mom would say to me that it was too late to back out and that I made this bed and I had to lie in it. And that was a pretty common theme when we were kids. You make this bed, you have to lie in it. You lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. It was always my fault, no matter what was happening to me. And I was an adult. And still no one in that church, in my family that was in attendance, said to me, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea. They all just sat there in their dysfunction and was like, this is totally normal for people to scream their mothers in the back of the church before the wedding starts um so I got married and I married my grandfather and um he was a narcissist he was an alcoholic he was bipolar and perhaps worst of all he was a wife beater um I gained over 100 pounds in just those first few months of being married um and of course, I've discovered since then that's a way I, that I've discovered as an adult to sort of protect myself from ha- having other people be interested in me or to look at me. Um, so I spent all this time in teenagers, like wanting everybody to look at me and pay attention to me. And then I, as an adult, tried to do something that was the complete opposite of that. Um, the police escorted him out of our apartment four months into our marriage, and I divorced him six months later. And I would go on to lose the weight and actually as a result of that I finally went to counseling for being molested as a child but I didn't actually find recovery so while I knew what my story was and what had happened to me and that it wasn't my fault and that it was you know the big people around me needed didn't didn't protect me and I needed to be protected I didn't actually find any recovery in that therapy instead I just found new men to be codependent with and just you can just rinse and repeat that story over and over, maybe a little bit less crazy than my, mari- my first marriage, but still crazy, and it would go on for years. Um, I would not get married again until I was 39, and I am still married to that man today. We're both adult children, and um, he has his own story and his own recovery journey. He is an ACA as well. We've endured uh, four miscarriages in the last uh, eight years. We've also adopted two beautiful children who were who we were foster parents for. Um, interestingly enough, our children will sit in these rooms someday. I have no doubt about it because the nature of foster care is abandonment front and center, whether um, you like it or not, when kids are removed from their family of origin, even if their family of origin is completely chaotic, the fact that they were removed from them is an abandonment. So Three years ago, I came to ACA after a four-year-old girl who had been placed with us for foster care had basically brought me and my husband and our marriage and our family to our knees. Um, Her trauma was so profound that it opened up all of our old wounds. And by our, I mean my husband and I's. Um, She had sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, this lifetime of pain in just four short years. And it resulted in this child who was a lot more like a feral animal than a sweet little girl. After she left our care, we were on the brink of divorce. Um, And so we went to counseling because we wanted to save our marriage. And we had two kids that we loved dearly that we had adopted and that we really wanted to um, be the parents and the family for them that they didn't get in their own families of origin. Um, so we went to counseling together and separately. I um, I confronted my husband um, with about his behavior, his harms, his dysfunction, all of his failings. Um, I'm sure you can imagine how well that went. <laughs> uh, afterwards, in my individual therapy session, our therapist pointed out to me that um, perhaps I needed to explore twelve step recovery for my codependency. <laughs> and I was like, me, me, I'm not the one who's codependent. <laughs> um, And, and I was so certain that my therapist was wrong. And, and I said, I would go to 12 step recovery just to prove it. Like in my mind, it was like, to prove you wrong, you know, like, oh, of course I'll go to prove you wrong. Um, So I came to ACA like fucking angry, man. I was pissed off at every, was pissed off at my therapist. I was pissed off at my husband. I was pissed off at the kid that had been placed with us in foster care. I mean, I felt like everybody was working against me. And, um, as a codependent who in denial, a codependent in denial, really, I came to the rooms with this list of things that if my husband would do that everything would be fine. Right. If he would just, you know, admit them, prostrate himself for him, and then, you know, I'd be okay. And seriously, like, I came to the rooms with a list Um, that if that isn't codependent, (laughs) but I couldn't see my all too obvious codependency um, because my need for controlling everyone else was so loud in my head. Um, But I did love that in ACA, I could speak my truth, even if everyone else in the meeting knew that I was dead wrong. (laughs) Um, they let me speak and they let me read my lists. Um, they heard me and they loved me, even though maybe I was dead wrong. And they, they let me go through all the power, the very powerful and painful things that come with growth in recovery. Um, I can tell you that as soon as the laundry list was read in the meeting, I'd start to cry. And I cried at every meeting for two months, for almost the entire meeting, from like the moment they led the laundry list until like way through my shares and all the way to the end, and and when people would hug me after the meeting, and that seemed really like oh my gosh, people are touching me, and all that sensory input was just so much. But I can't. But one thing that ha- that didn't happen at ACA meetings is that no one rushed in to fix me, and I somehow thought when I come here once I admitted that maybe I was codependent that somebody was going to come and fix me. Um. I, like somebody was going to come up and say, I'll be your sponsor and I'll fix you. And as it turns out, ACA doesn't do that and they don't fix victims. And, and that was completely disappointing to me as a lifelong victim. Um, but ACA did slowly and, and in its very methodical way help me find my voice. And I was able to shed that victim cloak and walk into the light of responsibility and being my own loving parent. Um, with recovery and awareness, um, working through my steps, I had to admit ultimately that I had a part in all of the things that I was complaining about. And I'll repeat that. I had a part. So it was me. It wasn't my husband who needed to change. It was me. Um, you know, that what they say, when you point, you have three fingers pointing back at you? That's what happened to me and he said that there was more fingers pointing at me than at him. Um, I would expand my recovery and join Eating Disorders Anonymous as I recognized that I was a compulsive overeater. I also started attending Al-Anon simply because I was taking my daughter to attend Alateen all the way down in Chandler, which if you're in the Phoenix area, it's a long ways from Central Phoenix to Chandler. Um, But uh, this is back when she was eight years old. She earnestly believed that her bio mom's meth addiction was her fault and that she could fix it if I would just let her see her mom one more time. And so. Um, we tried a lot of counseling and stuff, but Alatine was ultimately the place for her that helped her, um, see that she didn't cause it. She couldn't control it and she can't cure it. And she can say those words over and over. That's a very common Alatine sort of mantra. And of course, all of that gives me great joy because ACA was started by former Alatines, So I know she's in the right place, um, to heal some of the things that I can't heal even as her mom. So all of that is to say that I've sat in a lot of great rooms since 2018, and I've worked my steps several times, um, but I'm far from fully recovered on anything. Um, But I have tools now, and they're great tools. They are tools that do not include food or rage or drama, shame or pity or unhealthy codependency. Um, I still have all of those old friends, but I am a lot less likely to pick them up these days. So a lot of things have changed for me in recovery. And I would say first and foremost, I found a kind and loving higher power. The God of my childhood, as I'm sure this was true for many of you, was an old man with a white beard. In fact, in my, this old man in my childhood was an old Catholic man with a white beard. Um, and he had a fairy tale kind of hippie for a son and a pet dove that could shape shift into Pentecostal flames he had a lightning bolt and he was all about hellfire and brimstone guilt and blame. And as I came into recovery, I realized pretty quickly that that guy had to go because he was my parents and my parents were not in recovery. And so I could not bring that God with me into recovery. He was a jerk. I mean, really, let's just be honest. (laughs) So today my higher power is, a much less foreboding, um, probably a mix of the, that old God's kind of pet dove without, you know, the flames, maybe a little bit like his hippie son, um, but gentle and radiant, loving and safe, effeminate, um, unhurried. I, I imagine he wears Birkenstocks because, I mean, who doesn't if you're hip and cool and, you know, just peace loving. Um, and that God is just patiently waiting for me to let go and surrender and walk with him in peace and accept that unlimited sort of grace that's available to me. And to be honest, um, recently I've started thinking of my higher power as my inner pilot light. Um, so that that my higher power is actually this power of um, to recover um, that it, that lives within me. And it's like a pilot light and it's just waiting to be fueled by my decision to surrender. And that idea that it's not, Something outside of me, but it's actually within me, and um, you know it's not going to go out, but it's not trying to eat me alive <laughs> like a firewood. That idea of a pilot light has been really a big place of growth for me in in recent months. So, despite finding that higher power, when I was working on my sixth and seventh steps, I'll be honest with you, I was still struggling with how I was going to give up control and to surrender and ask my higher power to remove and integrate my defects of character. I couldn't tell you why, but I knew that I wasn't doing it. Um, I didn't have that old God that was standing there with a lightning bolt, but just the same, I just wasn't ready. Um, I, I mean, I was ready, I guess, but I just wasn't willing um you know step 3 is the, they say that step 7 is the completion of step 3 so step 3 you come into it with that willingness okay i w- i believe that maybe there could be some something that could happen that would be awesome and you get to step 7 and it's like here's the place where that belief that you thought was awesome now it's time for the trust fall you know and see if you can actually um you know let go of your control and i just wasn't able to completely turn my will and life over to my higher power um and so I, I sat in my sixth and seventh step for a while. And one day my family was sitting in church and um, and no surprise church was part of the dysfunction of my childhood, but it's also been a place of healing for me as an adult. Um, while I don't necessarily drink the Kool-Aid of church, I do love a good village. And I have found a lot of, um, I found a, a village that is pretty tolerant of my insolence and they maybe even sort of embrace my insolence. So Um, that day we were sitting in church. My toddler was probably grinding Cheerios into the carpet and my preteen was no doubt pouting about how boring church was. Um, the priest was giving a sermon on a Bible story about having the faith, the size of a mustard seed. And I know that's not maybe familiar for everyone. So just to give you some context for those that aren't familiar, um, in the book of Luke, the apostles say to Jesus, increase our faith. And Jesus says to them, well, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So that's the story. And okay, like most horrible stories, I'm like, dude, I don't even know how that would apply to me today. <laughs> like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And, and like I said, I go to church for the hugs, not for the preaching. But there I was listening to some preaching. And this particular priest is one that I actually like a lot. His sermons are simple. He kind of makes stuff real. And in talking about that mustard seed story, he said, "God isn't asking you to have faith that is big and flashy. And there's no Mary Poppins measuring tape, like, whoop, just right. You know, it's it's not that. It's nothing. His your God isn't comparing your faith to anyone else's around you. Uh, which I was like, really, because I have <laughs> like pitting me against my fellow faith people is what my whole childhood was about." Um, Instead, the, the priest quite passionately was explaining that if I had faith the size of a mustard seed, which is really so small, it's like a grain of sand, that that was enough for, for God. That was enough. I need not grow it or be, make it any bigger than what it was. Um, whatever I had, that that would be enough and I would be enough. And I sat there in that pew that day listening and this wash of warmth. Um, came over me. Some might say it's like the Holy Spirit, or maybe it was my pilot light finally getting me to surrender and, and like the burner came on. But whatever it was, I suddenly understood why I was stalled in my seventh step that I didn't think my faith was enough. And why would my higher power remove all of my big, heavy, burdensome, crappy behaviors that I brought onto myself over a lifetime? Um, I just didn't feel like I had enough to deserve that. Um, I, I knew I had faith and I could say most definitely yes, but dysfunction and shame, which were the messages from my childhood told me that my faith wasn't big enough for any higher power. Even one as loving and gentle as the one that I envisioned mine to be. Um, But then here's this guy and he's like saying, wrong. You do not need big faith, Melissa. You need a mustard seed of faith. And I had that. And as it turns out, that's all I needed. Um, God's grace could be mine. And, you know, I could uproot a tree and plant it in the ocean. That's what my recovery called for, but. So far, I haven't found a reason to ask for trees to be uprooted. So I haven't done that. But if I do, I'm going to try it out because I believe that that can happen. I do have that belief now that if I can surrender, that those things I need in my life can happen. Um, so if any of you have any ideas about why trees might need you to plan some notion, just let me know because I'd really like to try it out. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> my ACA sponsor's name is also Melissa. And so I sent her a message when I got home from church and I was like, I am ready to go into step eight. And she called me and she was like, oh, what the hell is going on? Because clearly neither of us belong in church. We passed way too much. Um, but what, what happened, what I realized now, what happened, it was my spiritual awakening. And that can happen anywhere, all at once or, or like a slow burn. We hear about it in step 12, but it doesn't happen in step 12. If, if you look at step 12 closely, it does just acknowledge that somewhere along the way, we have a spiritual awakening and mine happened in step seven. Um, Definitely your experience will vary. Uh, The biggest thing I have learned in recovery is this, that recovery is slow. Um, Sec work can be fast, but recovery happens like nightfall in summer. It's soft and slow, and little by little, it's happening. Um, And so why is it so slow? And looking back over my own work, and then also having had the great honor of being asked to sponsor other people and walk their steps with them, I have a theory about why it's so slow. Um, For 48 years, I've done the same sort of dysfunctional things over and over. And dysfunctional behavior is like any other behavior. It's like speech or walking, typing or driving. Um, Behavior is a muscle memory. And um, for example, when my son Um, started talking. He had some problems with his ears. And so he learned sign language before he ever spoke verbally. But when he finally did get tubes and he started to use his voice, he would simultaneously and instinctively use the signs for pain and food and people's names while he was speaking verbally. And why would he do that now that he actually had his voice? And the reason why is because it was a muscle memory and his muscle memory of those words included moving his hands. And that's exactly what my brain does about this dysfunctional things I've done my whole life. Um, It's hard to expect that one meeting one time through the big book one time, even through doing your steps or talking to a fellow traveler is going to create this new muscle memory um, or a new habit. It just, that's not how it happens. That's not how muscle memory is built and that's not how we, affect change in our lives. Um, It's much slower than that. And I can tell you that in my experience, healing my dysfunctional behavior and creating muscle memories though, is not only possible, it's really part of the ninth step promises. It is something that I honestly know to be true because I saw it firsthand in my own step work. Um, When I did my first 10th step, my EDA sponsor, whose name is Annette, would send me her written 10th step every day. And I mean like every day. And so every day, I begrudgingly at first um, would write out my 10th step and send it back to her. And the thing that really sucked about it is the same shit came up almost every day, (laughs) including how I was lashing out at my preteen daughter's age-appropriate behavior um, you know, how dare you talk back to me? How dare you tease your brother really it kind of boiled down to like, how dare you not have a fully developed prefrontal cortex is what I might as well have been yelling at her. Um, and I know you're all thinking mom of the year, right? So yeah, every damn time I would make it about me. Um, and I was acting the way my mom had acted towards me. Uh, by even to the point of withholding love and attention, trying to get her to conform to some kind of behavior. And I had a lot of shame about that. Um but every damn time I wrote out my tenth step, it was kind of like the same sort of thing went sideways with my daughter. And I could identify that there was a better solution, but in the moment, um over and over in my day-to-day life, I, I went to the old muscle memory. And, but in large part because of my sponsor was so insistent, I did write out my 10th step over and over again. And then one day, my daughter threw down what I like to call her best sassholery because I'm raising sassholes. And my brain, for some reason, not uh, any conscious choice on my part, instead of saying, How dare you, my brain like clicked into this better solution and I adulted. And I heard words coming out of my mouth like, Hey, it sounds like you're struggling. What's going on? Uh, which is like not those words, not words in my childhood, definitely not words in my adulthood. Um, But that day it didn't go sideways and it went all right. And we had this normal connected sort of parent child conversation and her cup was filled and my cup was filled and my brain loved it. And it turns out that adulting is way less exhausting than what happens when my inner children are in charge. Um, and in the days that followed, my relationship with her changed from bad to somewhat tolerant to um, loving. Not that it's perfect today, but it's much better. And my husband even noticed it, and he hardly notices anything. Um, so one night I went back through my 10th step journal and I counted how many days had I been making it my daughter's behavior about me. And it was 57 days. And remember, that I'd been a parent for less than three years because my children are adopted. So I'd been a parent for less than three years and it took me 57 days to build a new muscle memory. 57 days of writing out my 10th step. It seemed so simple to say, hey, it sounds like you're struggling. But my brain was wired for you know, 46, 47 years of reacting to every single person I encountered like they were the enemy, including my own children. And those 57 days are progress, not perfection, because, you know, I'm still a fucking nightmare as a parent most of the time. (laughs) Um, But those moments are less and less as I stay the course in recovery. And so now, you know, if I'm living my best life now, it's not because I just worked the steps. It's not because I came to meetings. And it's not because I just wished it would be so. And it's not because it's step 12, like have the heavens open up and bam, you're a new person. That's Actually, not how it works, which is also was very disappointing to me when I found out that step 12 wasn't like the moment I would be fixed. (laughs) Um, It takes a daily commitment to quiet introspection, um, which is the 11th step and actively writing out my 10th step. And thank you, Julie. I see that five minutes left. For my 11th step, I actually use a modified version of the Prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. It's a very simple way to take my own inventory. Um, and it has sort of nice rhythm and cadence to it. As far as my 10th step, um, well, I have a lot of freaking baggage, as I told you. Um, but basically, I, you know, my whole life, I've been stuffing junk in my trunk. And when I don't do my 10th step, I just stuff more junk into my trunk. And so how can I ever expect to deal with all of that old shit from my childhood at the bottom of the trunk if I'm just piling more and more crap on top of it? And so what the 10th step does for me is it takes care of the last 24 hours and I don't continue piling stuff on top of the old stuff. And what I found is who really loves the 10th step are my inner children. Because suddenly this adult child who doesn't, can't pay her bills, Balance or bank account, check or email with any kind of regularity. I suddenly had this emotional sobriety that every 24 hours I would take care of my emotional business and I stopped stuffing new crap into our trunk. And my inner children took note. They started to trust me. They started to feel things. They started talking. And really, they just started digging around in that trunk. And they gave me some really deep and sorrowful memories. a lot of them that I've unearthed as I've worked the steps with other people. They didn't even come up in my own step work. Um, and with emotional sobriety, I was able to accept those memories and validate my inner children's pain and reparent myself in those moments to a place of healing and clarity. And to say, this is what a loving parent should have and would have done for you. This is what you deserved." Um, I don't do all of that alone. I have a therapist. I have a, I have a couple sponsors. I have a slew of fellow travelers. And of course I have at Higher Power who will gladly help me bear that pain whenever I am willing to surrender it. So um, you've probably heard that mantra, you can't keep it if you don't give it away. And that's what service and sponsorship is for me. It allows me to keep my recovery even when I'm still acting a lot less than recovered. When I'm eating, which is my big one, when I'm raging, shaming, blaming. Um, when I'm not owning it in my 10th step, um, then, you know, I am not keeping my recovery. So I'm, I find now I'm not pointing fingers anymore. I'm not really wallowing into, into whatever happens. If something went sideways, I own it. If it involves another person, I apologize. And I set better boundaries, but I do not blame them for hurting my feelings. And I don't wait 20 years to make amends. So to be perfectly honest, it's a lot easier to say I was an asshole 20 years ago than it is to say I was an asshole 20 minutes ago. Um, So just to wrap up, I will tell you that probably the most important thing, and um, Gretchen already sent this out because I wanted everybody to have it as I talked about it, and everybody always asked me for a copy of it. Um, Really, no matter where you are in your, your step work, in your journey, start journaling. Um, The physical manifestation of words on paper is so powerful and it's freeing because you put the words on paper and then you give them away and you don't have to carry them around or put them in your trunk. Um, Journaling is directly related to connecting with your inner child and to reparenting. And it releases all those things that weigh us down and it allows us to build trust with ourselves and others. And so I have a simple sort of formula that I use and that's in the document that Gretchen sent you. Um, And actually I asked, people to start um, journaling um, and doing 10-step work before they even start their four-step. Because I find when we can create places of trust with our inner children, we get a lot more out of our four-step. And I just look at what went well. I list it out. I celebrate it. Woo-hoo. What went sideways? I don't call it what went wrong because it's not right and wrong. It just went sideways. I list those things out and I say, You know, what was threatened? What was at risk? Those are anything you find in the promises. So serenity, self-esteem, healthy relationships. I ask, what was my part? Those are always the things you find in the laundry list. So rigid thinking and unrealistic expectations, body shaming, negative self-talk. And then three, what was the better resolution for all those things that went sideways? Do I need to apologize? Do I need to get grounded in my body, set a boundary, reach out? And then finally, gratitude and goals, because even on the worst day, there is something to be grateful for and something to look forward to. Um, I have a roof over my head. I have a phone number of a fellow traveler, even if I haven't used it yet. Um, my favorite is I have celly buddy and I play with it during Zoom morning, boring Zoom meetings. You know, like that's something to celebrate. Like at least I had celly buddy when that person was droning on and on and on. So and that it's, you'll find that in that document that Gretchen put in the chat. So thank you so much for letting me speak. Um, my service is my recovery. And I hope that I have helped shine a light into the darkness for each of you tonight. So thank you for letting me be here. Thank you, Melissa. Wow. Oh, what a powerful thanks, Melissa. share. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Melissa. Melissa. you. Thank no you Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Melissa.